There's an argument among some evolutionary biologists that the reason why modern humans succeeded over other species of humans was because we are such social creatures. But we are not the only social animals out there. So how do other animals compare? Do more social animals show higher intelligence? Find out today on Boiling Point. Welcome to Boiling Point. Today in the studio, you have myself, Anastasia, and... Ina, hello. Hey, we are chatting with Lizzie Speechley today. Lizzie is a behavioral ecologist at the University of Western Australia. Her research explores differences in cognition in the Western Australian magpie. Welcome to Boiling Point, Lizzie. Hey, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, Lizzie, I want to know, what is the definition of cognition? Because I genuinely have no idea. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with the definition. My The simplest way I can put it is it's information processing. So it's your ability to take in information from your environment, process that, and then decide on whether you act on it. Um, you might hear me say intelligence during the podcast. It's a little bit anthropomorphic. Mm. Uh, so if you do hear me say that, it's just a simplified way of saying cognition. Okay. So do... Can all animals show cognition or is it very specific to only some animals? No, I think we they all can because they all exist in an, in an environment where they need to take in information from, mm-hmm. well, their environment in general and decide whether to act on that, whether that's looking for food, looking for a mate, all of those sorts of things. But a good point to that is that cognition for a species is very specific to that species. So what is cognitive for, I say, a dolphin is not necessarily the same as what would be for a chimp or something else. Okay. How, sorry, how do you decide on like the, I guess, the measurement or the scale of (laughs) cognition for each animal? Yes. So a lot of our tests are derived from psychology, actually. Um, So there's very specific cognitive abilities that we test. Um, In humans, it's um, fairly well studied that there is a general intelligence factor. But in animals, we just try to stay to specific cognitive abilities. So for example, in my research, what we use is associative learning. So simply put, it's your ability to associate a cue, an environmental cue with a reward or another stimulus. Mm. So with the magpies, can you associate a color with a food reward? Mm -hmm. So why work on magpies? Yes. Well, I'm very lucky to work with them because they are very special. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I suppose in terms of social intelligence hypothesis, first of all, you're looking at cognition. So you want a species that I guess is up to the task of doing these tests So magpies actually demonstrate really sophisticated cognitive abilities, which I think sometimes surprises people, but we know that they can use tools. uh, And we've recently had a paper published showing that they actually recognize familiar human voices. So they're able to recognize, say, our voices without the visual stimulus of us being there. So basically don't hurt a magpie because he will remember remember. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so do you ever have troubles, you know, when you're out in the field doing your magpie studies? Do you ever have troubles like identifying which bird is a magpie and which one is a currawong? 
No, I'm. we're quite lucky in terms of the very black and white plumage is, is very distinct in, t- in the habitat. Uh, and the best thing with our uh, Western Australian subspecies is they're in set territories. So that territory might be, say, an oval, it might be in a residential area, but it is set. So you know that if you come to that area, your group's going to be there. Doesn't mean they always come down when you want them to come down <laughs> to do things because they're animals <laughs> and they like to test us. But, yeah, it um, it's fairly easy to distinguish them. Okay, so let's just backpedal for just a second. You mentioned a hypothesis. You said social intelligence hypothesis. Am I correct in that? Yes. What is that hypothesis? Yeah, so there's obviously, as you can imagine, a lot of theories about why cognition has evolved, why certain species or even individuals are smarter or more cognitive than others. Mm. And one of the leading ones is, as you said at the start of the show, that Being social is what has made us smarter. Mm -hmm. And that hypothesis actually comes from primates. That's where it was initially sort of formulated. But since then, there's been evidence in an array of species from fish, birds, reptiles, insects. So really it's about those social pressures that animals face. So things like being able to recognize group members, remember previous activities, and also coordinate all of those different relationships. So if you have a group member who's, I guess, particularly angry and dominant, you have to associate that individual with maybe that's who I don't want to mess with in my group. Oh, okay. So maths has nothing to do with it. You're not getting them to do algebra or anything. It's all about no. how they're interacting with you know, the the individuals in the group. Does it also um, pertain to how they interact with their mates as well or, or not really? Yeah, so I guess should explain what I do with mm-hmm. my research. So other than doing the cognitive testing, which I was talking about using that associative learning test. So by the way, in that case, I'm just yeah. imagining you like doing IQ tests for MacPies. <laughs> just like be like, okay, now sit down in, at this desk. You have three hours to do this test. No bathroom breaks. <laughs> So unfortunately, it pretty much just looks like a dodgy arts and crafts project, (laughs) what I give them. Um, But basically what we've done is designed a a task that we we give to them. So remember, they are wild. um, So it is completely their decision as to whether they interact with this test. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, it's a wooden block and it just has some holes drilled into it. Mm -hmm. And those each of those two holes is covered with a little lid that will swivel when it's pecked. And those two lids are obviously different colours, like I said, because we want to test if they associate that colour with the food. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess to point out, we have designed that test specifically because magpies are ground foragers. So the actual action of pecking is a natural thing for them. So it's a bit like presenting a monkey with a computer screen. It's not particularly useful in the wild. We want to test things that are actually, I guess, ecologically relevant for them. Mm. Um, so, yes, that test would be, say, out of those two colours, like a dark green and a light green, mm-hmm. we would randomly assign one colour. So, say, in this instance, it's the dark green. Mm-hmm. We would make sure that the food is only ever put under that little dark green lid. So we're basically seeing how long it takes for them to make that association that it's only ever the dark green lid that's got the colour. And then the faster they do that, the smarter they are? 
Yes, to a degree. So we we make them do it. They have to do it in 10 out of 12 consecutive trials just to make sure it's not a chance yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily the speed at which they, they do it. It's just getting it done in those trials consecutively. So some of them are amazing and they do it in 10 trials, perfect you know, perfect score. Some can take up to 50 (laughs) to get it right. So you do get quite a lot of variation in cognitive performance. Wow. So are you able to kind of tell the smart magpies from the dumb dumb magpies like over time? You're like, oh, there's George. He's a really smart one. (laughs) There's Billy. He's not very good. (laughs) Well, it's actually, um, it's really interesting because you do just looking at them, you're thinking, oh God, you know, I can understand why he got a bad score. But uh, one, of my, <laughs> um, one of my supervisors, they were actually looking at repeatability of cognitive performance. Mm. So uh, my supervisor, Ben Ashton, he did his PhD a couple of years prior to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should just preface what he actually found was the basis of my work, which is that magpies in larger groups were smarter than those in smaller groups. Mm. So... I essentially build on that. But what he wanted to know as well is, is that cognitive performance repeatable over time? Mm-hmm. So is that individual who got a really good score, Is are they going to get a really good score, you know, three years down the track? And mm-hmm. the repeatability, especially for associative learning, is very high, um, actually surprisingly so. And even in my research, we found it is repeatable over consecutive years. So. Mm-hmm. So just, I guess, going off of that topic of repeatability within the same individual, but can they teach other individuals or can other individuals watch them do the test and then almost like cheat the test? Because now they're like, okay, the dark green, you know, one has the treat. Let me always pick the dark green one. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something we have to consider. Um, Mm. But we're quite specific about when we conduct a trial, because obviously in a lab, you're able to control all of the conditions that are around you for the most part. Mm -hmm. In the wild, it tests your patience. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) basically what we do is we make sure that all of the other magpies are at least 10 meters away and that they're not looking at what we're doing. Oh, how do you make sure of that? That sounds like an impossible um, job as I said, tests of patience. <laughs> um, so, you know, some groups, there's only two to three individuals, mm. some can have 15. So obviously varying levels of difficulty, but mm. what we would do is we often have volunteers with us. So we'll get them to sort of distract the other individuals, um, maybe herd them behind a tree <laughs> so that they can't <laughs> see. Um, so yeah, for the most part, we really try and make sure that no one is watching because if we were going to test what you just said, it's more about your social learning. So your ability to mm. watch someone else and take in that information. And mm. that's not really what we're wanting to look at. So we do try and control that them as much as we can. Okay. And you, you also mentioned how, you know, they can be in, in small groups, big groups, sometimes groups of three, sometimes groups of 15. How do you know which magpies belong into which group? Yeah. So, um, As I said, we're lucky that they're in a set territory. Mm. So, and they're quite defensive of that territory boundary. So, is this males and females that are this defensive? Yes. um, They actually, I should say, they do a really cool thing. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever seen them do it, but when they're fighting over a territory boundary, Mm -hmm. you would expect it to be quite aggressive, I guess. Uh, But what they actually do is they arrange themselves in a line. And they sort of pace back and forth in this line, looking all puffed up and grumpy. Um, And so it's a little bit of a magpie standoff on the territory (laughs) boundary. 
but yeah, they're very rarely aggressive. It's a lot of just, you know, yelling at each other and, you know, pacing back and forth. But um, yeah, other than that, it, often we get quite lucky that our groups are set in say an oval. So I can go to that oval. Mm-hmm. Our, our birds are part of Amanda Ridley's uh, research project. So she has habituated them to respond to a whistle. So I can go to that particular park. Mm-hmm. I can whistle, give them a little bit of food and they all come flying down when they want to cooperate. Yeah. <laughs> And that's sort of uh, a cue to get them used to us, to know that we're friendly. And the whole idea of them being habituated is that when we put that food away and we start just going about our business, they then go back to being wild birds Mm -hmm. and they lose interest in us very quickly. So it's easy for us to then observe natural interactions. Right. So when you do your your fieldwork studies, do you do it in like, you know, a, a national park or do you do it somewhere in the city or both? Yeah, well, so I'm very lucky that they're actually based at the University of Western Australia, yeah. some of the groups, and our other groups are just in residential areas. Mm-hmm. We have had lots of discussions about taking it to rural areas, but what we've seen tends to happen is, I guess, in a residential area, they're a bit more tightly packed in terms of the groups, whereas mm-hmm. if you go rurally, they're quite big groups. So it okay. would be quite hard to a, habituate them, to get them to the point where they trust us, they recognise the whistle, uh, and also just to track them in the first place. Mm-hmm. So do, do you know if like rural birds versus, you know, more more urban birds, if there's a difference in their cognition? I don't know. And we would love, even we've noticed um, one of my colleagues, Sarah Walsh, is looking at their vocalisations specifically. And Mm -hmm. just, you know, anecdotally, you can hear little differences in how they vocalise between even, you know, going, if we're at Perth, going down a couple of hours, Mm -hmm. their vocalisations are slightly different. So it would be really interesting. But just off the top of my head, I would think if they're in an urban area, they probably have to be quite smart about how they get food or it could be the reverse where they have to work harder in a rural area to get food so it would be interesting to look at Mm -hmm. right so okay can you just walk me through a regular field day in Lizzie's life (laughs) oh yes so I should preface that the field work even though it's local there is a lot of it Mm. Uh, because it's you know me essentially seeing who's interacting with who and we have 18 groups Mm -hmm. um so basically it's been about three years of field work every morning so it's a big commitment um but it is by far the best part of the phd to be (laughs) out outside working with animals yeah so uh, i guess a typical day is whenever the sun gets up is when you want to be out. So that can vary to, you know, 4am in the summer Mm -hmm. to 7am. Okay, but why is that? Because I see magpies around all the time. Yes. So because the the tests involve a food element, I guess, Mm -hmm. we want to get them when they're actually down and foraging on the ground. Because as Mm -hmm. I said, they're they're ground foragers. So they tend to forage the most at dawn and dusk, um, just before it gets too hot. Because it seems to be about midday sort of siesta time and get out of the sun and rest. Mm -hmm. So that's that's essentially why. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would go out typically with some volunteers with me. Uh, and we would drive out about half an hour to our field site. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go to a group 
I would try and see if I can see them in the trees or on the ground, give my whistle and um, give them a little bit of food, show them I'm here. It also gives me um, a chance at that point to see who's present in the group, to make sure that I, I know that everyone's there um, or if they're missing, I can at least note it down. So if they're missing, do you try and look for them? Yeah, within reason. Um, it's because sometimes, you know, they can just be being stubborn. They might, <laughs> have, you know, they might be gone. Um, so generally, if I've got most of the group there, mm-hmm. I, I go. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I do with the social element of my work is it's effectively 90 minutes at each group observing every interaction possible. So I have to keep track of everyone in that group at all times. Mm. So you can imagine if there's a group of 15 of them, there's a lot of running around with me and volunteers on walkie talkies <laughs> saying, you know, Fred's gone over here and George is over there. Oh, and- <laughs> how cute. <laughs> um, but yeah, essentially what I want to do in that 90 minutes is see who's interacting with who. So I want to know who's playing with who. I want to know who's fighting with who. How do you tell the difference? <laughs> so magpies, sometimes it can be hard because, you know, even with kids, sometimes play escalates into a fight. Exactly. So, but for the most part, um, people may have seen magpies, particularly the, the juveniles, they love to sort of roll on the floor and they'll put their feet together and just, you know, almost play tootsies oh, on the floor. So the play is, is quite obvious that it's mm. just silly rolling around sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas fighting is, is usually a chase and you'll just see a flash of black and white <laughs> in front of your, or, you know, you may see a peck or, you know, some sort of aggressive behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So let's continue on with your day. So you're seeing if they're fighting or playing, you're noting it down. Yeah. And we also, we look at who's singing with who, uh, because we thought perhaps that's a measure of how they're socially interacting. Okay. Uh, So when I say singing, I'm talking about that characteristic song that we know of magpies, that Mm -hmm. sort of chorus that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, It just became a little bit too hard to look at discrete little sounds that they make, whereas when they sing, they sing together. So you can be sure that's some sort of interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last and most fun thing I say sarcastically is how (laughs) physically close they are. So every 15 minutes of that 90 minutes, we are looking at how close every pair of birds is in a group. So it is madness but it's a lot of fun so it keeps you on your toes do you have those like special binoculars that have a ruler within the binocular to tell you how far apart they are or do you just guess I actually did not know they existed I really wish I did (laughs) but no it's um to be honest when before we started my volunteers and I we did a lot of tests so Mm. we would actually say we estimate this distance to be one meter 50 meters, 100 meters, and actually measure it out and check. So we had a fair, you know, 80 to 90% confidence that we were estimating correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, there's a degree of error, but you just do the best you can in the moment. Um, So those those observations, typically I'd be out for maybe five to six hours a day. So I'd just go to multiple groups because you can imagine you got a lot of time. If you lose sight of them, you have to pause, start again. Or if they're being stubborn, maybe you try another group, all of that sort of stuff. So I think I calculated overall, it was almost a thousand hours watching magpies in total. So 
I have seen a lot of magpie stuff. <laughs> yeah. So anything that ever like that stood out during your time of fieldwork, any like super funny or maybe like wholesome interactions that you've seen between magpies? Yeah, I, my supervisor's going to laugh at me when she hears this, but um, the juveniles are by far the sweetest thing because oh. they are, you, you can hear them nagging their mums, you know, like they're so annoying, but so cute. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing them play. And there is one particular group with one that I bonded with so much. Um, he was a juvenile when I started and he's a little bit pathetic in terms of, you know, he just wants to kind of follow you and not be a bird. Oh. Um <laughs> But he was by far my favourite and still is. Um, but I guess it's just, you just see stuff you don't expect, especially breeding. You, it's so much drama really? <laughs> between magpies. Who needs maths yeah. when you've got magpies? <laughs> You're asking me. <laughs> <laughs> I um, No, there. I, I mean, I could tell you a bit about the mating behaviour. Oh, if please you do. To know. Yeah. As I think, I think people would see it and not know what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically what the females will do is they'll sort of puff themselves up, puff their bums up and wiggle their bums mm-hmm. in the tree. It's oh very God. funny when you see it. <laughs> and so it's like they're then lifting up their often... skirts, like a Marilyn Monroe pose. <laughs> yeah. Um, and me getting really excited because I've got something to record. Oh, that <laughs> <is>. <laughs> um, But yeah, then you'll just see sort of a male popping up branches of the trees real subtly, just giving a little bit of a song as he does it. And then it's just a mad sort of fluff of feathers in a second and then off they go. So if you ever see that weird bum wag, if it's an adult, it probably is that during breeding. But Mm. oddly enough, the juveniles also do it. So juveniles will do that sort of bluffing up bum wagging as a submissive behaviour as well. Oh, really? Yeah, if they've got a dominant male, you know, perhaps in breeding is not happy that they're close to the nest or whatever, mm-hmm. the juveniles will do that as a, please don't hurt me, I'm not intimidating. Oh. Yeah, it oh. does work sometimes for them. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is so cute. And, um, like, are the groups family groups or, like, are there mainly females, males? I don't know how it works. It's a, it's a really good question. So I know I'm obviously specialised in the Western subspecies, but those groups are a mix. Um, you will have females, males, juveniles, and they're not necessarily related. Um, there was actually a study that showed that the extra group paternity was over 80%, which I believe is the highest on record for a bird species. Oh, wow. So I guess if you look at it scientifically, it's stopping them being inbred because mm-hmm. they're copulating outside of their um, their natal group mm-hmm. um, also makes it very tricky to identify fathers because obviously you don't know where they've come from. But right. yes, um, and I suppose in terms of size of groups, generally in our groups tends to be a little bit more female bias, so more females than males, but otherwise, mm-hmm. yeah, it really varies. Oh, okay. Are, are females just as aggressive, can, can be just as aggressive as the males? Yeah, based on my observations, um, Equally aggressive, but oddly enough, so males tend to be aggressive to males or juveniles, whereas females tend to be aggressive to other females or juveniles. So it seems to be within sex or, or obviously the, the young ones get picked on a lot, but, oh. you know, um, poor things. <laughs> but, yeah, it um it has been interesting. We haven't fully tested it, but um just based on what I saw it was interesting. 
So as you're doing your work, right, because you were saying sometimes you're just like at uni doing your work or, you know, a few minutes outside of uni, do you get a lot of people coming in like while you're trying to do all your observations to be like, oh, like, you know, what are you up to? What are you doing? And then you're like, no, no, I have to restart my experiment. A little bit. And it's like, it's lovely because magpies get a bad rap a lot of the time. So it is nice to hear from people who love them, Mm. but um, you'd be amazing. You'd be amazed at what people miss. You know, if you've got a task on the ground and you, we have shirts that say experiment in progress, or we wear high vis, we've had signs. Um, and people just don't clearly don't see it. And then they either a dog will run through the experiment or someone will scare <laughs> off the bird. So I've pros and cons of having um, field work that's really close to, I guess, society. Whereas if you were off in the Kalahari, they'd be harder to find, but you wouldn't get all those disruptions. Yeah, yeah. So um, what do you kind of want to say to people who maybe have um, – you maybe don't see magpies as this like lovely, beautiful bird. You know them for their personality and stuff, right? Um, but do, yeah, do you have any any words of wisdom for the people that, you know, might see you doing your work and might be like, oh, why is she playing around with magpies or whatever? Yeah. Well, I guess the the first thing to address is the swooping, obviously, because that is what really polarizes people. And I I completely understand that because it can be quite scary. But if you look at it logically, or the way I look at it is, I actually think it's quite an admirable quality that, you know, males in particular are going to all these um, lengths to defend their young. Mm. And magpies are 300 grams. And the average person is what, 70 kilos. So they know they're not going to win. They just want to scare off the threat. So I think that's actually a really good quality to have as a parent. Mm -hmm. But in terms of magpies in general, the thing that stood out to me about this field work is actually taking the time to just stop and just watch nature. You would be amazed at what you actually see and take in. Mm-hmm. It was the happiest I've been in my whole PhD was just being outside and seeing all the amazing things that they do and how they interact with each other mm-hmm. because they are such an interesting species. And I think all the people who, you know, have local magpies in their around their houses seem to think the same thing. They get really bonded to how beautiful these birds are and how fun they are to yeah. watch. Um, anything on, uh, how we can make sure that we, you know, keep these social environments healthy for these magpies, um, you know, make sure everything's going really well, anything like that? Any words of advice? Yeah, I guess minimal human interference as much as possible. I understand that people really bond with the magpies and want to help. Um, we generally discourage feeding them in large amounts because they are wild animals that yeah. need, you know, to fo- learn to forage for themselves. Um, and I guess the, the main thing that stood out to me is especially in summer, just putting out some um, water sources for them. So they have water to drink, minimizing, cutting down trees, things mm. like that is the best thing people can do. Yeah. Um, okay. How about words of advice for doing a PhD? And you went through like a, as a great field season that you had, it was, must've been very hard, right? So any words of advice there? So my biggest advice is pick a project you love. Um, I could not have gotten through these years without having a project that I felt really strongly about that I enjoyed mm-hmm. because academia can be tough and um, a lot of hours in the field, but it helps if you really enjoy what you're doing. 
my other advice would be pick a supervisor that you get on with and that works well with you. I've been so lucky to have the supervisory team that I do and the support that I've had because we all have those moments where we think I can't do this or it's too much. And that's when you just need that moral support for someone to be like, I believe in you. <laughs> I can do it. Um, but that would be my main advice, project that you love and a great team surrounding you. Lizzie, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for opening up our eyes to the wonderful world of magpies. And I really hope our audience is going to start looking out at some of the beautiful behaviors that they can observe. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you to our audience for tuning in to Boiling Point, And we'll see you next week. Thank you.